Captain. Let's move. ABC Thursdays. Firefighters, we're family. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. The subject has explosive chemicals. With fiery romances. You're the love of my life. And Andy is finally in charge. I'm going to be the best damn captain the station has ever seen. Station 19, all new Thursdays, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. This is Pop Culture Confidential and I'm Christina Yerling Biru. Everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Confidential, a part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. How do you get into the head of a scammer? And what are some of the discussions and difficult ethical questions that they talk about in the writer's room? I'm so glad to have writer, producer, showrunner Liz Hanna back on the show. Right now, she's on two of the most buzzed about and critically acclaimed shows on TV, The Dropout and The Girl from Plainville. But first, how's this for a start? Liz Hanna's first screenplay was bought and made by Steven Spielberg and nominated for an Oscar. The Post centers around the Washington Post's decision to leak the Pentagon Papers and starred Meryl Streep. Then she went on to write Longshot and Fincher's Mindhunter. Now, she's writer and exec producer on The Dropout about disgraced Theranos founder Elizabeth Holmes, played by Amanda Seyfried. Let's take a listen. What do you know about Theranos? Healthcare startup, impressive board, with billions. It's all fake. It is such an honor to have the chance to work for a female CEO. Don't ask questions down here. She is the CEO. She knows what's going on. You think you're the good guy here. You have to make sure that if you have a new idea, you don't listen to a single person who tells you that you can't do it. We have to stop her. Liz Hanna is also the creator, executive producer, and showrunner alongside Patrick McManus on The Girl from Plainville. Elle Fanning stars as Michelle Carter, the Massachusetts teen who was convicted of involuntary manslaughter for texts encouraging the suicide of her boyfriend, Conrad Roy. Michelle, what is it? Conrad's dead. Who's Conrad? Leading up to his suicide, there are text exchanges between the two of them. Thousands of them. motive could she possibly have for telling him to kill himself? You don't get it. This is our love story. Liz Hanna, thank you so much for joining me and welcome back to the show. Thank you for having me. So last time we talked was such a whirlwind. You had written The Post. You'd just come off Longshot. You were writing for Mindhunter. I mean, have you caught your breath or is it still the same tempo? Um, a little bit. I took like a week off in between. <laughs> so um, there was, there was a, I, w- I went to Hawaii like right before the pandemic and I was like, it's going to calm down. Uh, and then it got crazy. So uh, no, I've been really lucky um, the last couple of years with the projects I've been able to work on. One of the things you said then I remember was you called yourself genre agnostic as a writer and that's certainly true. And now you currently are on two of the most talked about 
true crime shows on TV, one that's coming up. And I want to talk to you about the process and the genre. But first, what compelled you about these two women, starting with Elizabeth Holmes? I think it's something that I found throughout my work, which is I'm really interested in the gray area of humanity. It's something I think with Elizabeth Holmes and with Michelle Carter, um, it's something that I'm interested in throughout my career. And that I've been sort of chasing, which is this gray area of humanity, kind of exploring um, something that I think we all relate to, which is not everybody's evil, not everybody's innocent. Um, we're all everything. And I think particularly with women, we are vilified very quickly um, by the media, by the public. And I think with Elizabeth Holmes, you know, there's no, there, I, I try to approach everything without judgment uh, or without bias. Um, it's not my job to litigate anything. You know, she was on trial. Michelle Carter was convicted. Um, but I think with Elizabeth Holmes, there was just so much more to her psychopathy that was interesting to me. And um, watching somebody really fall into the fake it till you make it, fake it till you make it um, world and take that almost pathologically as facts was sort of fascinating to me. And yeah, because obviously these are real people and their stories have been marinated in the media. Their image is almost inescapable. So as a writer, how do you start to get your own take? It's a great question. I think you kind of have to from the get-go. Um, it, has to, it has to be almost like a gut instinct. It's something fictional or non-fictional that I feel is important is to have that Kind of gut pull to a character um and ultimately you have to put yourself in their shoes so even if they are um very very far to the end of the bad spectrum you have to be able to empathize with them and and take um take a look at how the their life was through their eyes how how the experiences and events they went through were done through their perspective and so I think really quickly with Elizabeth Holmes, I just was sort of fascinated by the idea of privilege and the idea of, um, you know, I don't know that that she would have gotten away with a lot of what she got away with if she wasn't a, a attractive white woman. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that was something that was really interesting to me to explore and to explore the 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 real sort of need for success, the need to be accepted. I think it's something that Elizabeth and Michelle have in common is kind of this idea of not wanting to be alone, of of needing acceptance, of needing popularity almost to to some extent. So that was something I was really attracted to. And I'm sure it's because something pathologically about me that I wrote (laughs) these two characters back to back. Um, But uh, yeah, I think, I think, trying to find somebody who's so desperate for love and and attention and looks for it all in the wrong ways um, felt, you know, I think in both of their stories, very unique. They're they're obviously the events of their lives are extremely specific, but I think the the goals they're looking for, the things they're missing in their lives are very universal. I think we all know what it's like to be lonely. I think we all know what it's like to want to be wanted and, and to sometimes make the wrong choices to get, fulfillment in that way. Did Elizabeth Holmes, do you think she believed that her tech worked? I think she believed that it would. I think it, I think she believed it would work. Mm-hmm. I think she believed it would work. I think, I think she believed that eventually it would get there. I mean, then the interesting thing to me is that in some way, in some 
ways she's right. You know, I mean, a drop of blood is never going to do all of the things that she wanted it to do. But there are actually companies out there who are doing a number of tests off of one drop of blood that would never have been, you know, thought that they could do 10, 15 years ago. I'm not saying that it's because of Theranos that they're doing it, but it's just, it is a path of, of the health sector and the health and technology sector that is being explored. So I think that's sort of fascinating to me that she was in some semblance right. She was right that this was an idea that could be successful. She just was not willing to adapt um, and was not willing to fail um, or, or, or in her mind, it was failure. Whereas, you know, I think in, in the minds of scientists, it's, it's success. Failure is looked at as a very positive thing in science right. because you learn what you can't do. And so I think that, um, that blind spot for her really made it impossible to, to succeed. And, and I think, and then of course, getting caught up in being the youngest female billionaire, um, self-made billionaire, you know, I, I think. But the idea is so, I mean, her idea was so theoretical and she didn't have any proof. Mm-hmm. What was so magnetic about her that she was able to get all this money based on nothing? <laughs> a great question. Um, I, it's something we talked about a lot in the room because it was something that it's, it's cause she, it's not that she's the most dynamic person. It's not that she's the most charming person. She's a weirdo. And I mean that without judgment, I'm a weirdo. Um, you know, she's, she's strange. And so it's interesting that somebody who's so off-putting in some ways was able to charm for lack of a better word, um, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars into this company. You know, I think, um, Honestly, I think her passion and her directness and her complete lack of um, any sense that failure was an option was quite magnetic. And she had a lot of really talented, experienced people working at Theranos Mm -hmm. who, you know, Anna Ariola was, who worked at Apple, left everything at Apple, all of her shares to go work at Theranos, that's a pretty convincing hire. Um, So I think um, that is that, that I think those things. And then, you know, honestly, I think it's a a really passionate young woman who can go toe to toe with the big boys and convince them that she was right. Um, And also everyone just wanted it felt like an, an era when everyone just wanted to be in on the big, you didn't want to miss that big thing. This might be the train. Mm-hmm. We have to get on it now. In terms of Michelle, what was the take that you guys in, in the room decided on going there? So with Michelle, I mean, I frankly approached Michelle um, when I was first approached about the project. I definitely came with more of a bias and judgment. Uh, upon the initial conversation, because I I didn't know anything about Michelle except for the People magazine cover and, you know, that she was this black widow. And I remember when the case happened and I have a I have a, a 21 year old brother and I or a 20 year old brother and he was a teenager at the time. And I remember thinking, like, how horrific that would be. And so I was definitely more inclined to not like her and to not be interested in doing the show, frankly, because of all the reasons that we were talking about is I, I couldn't really see the other side. And then after I read Jesse's article, um, I realized that there was much more to this story and much more to Michelle and to Conrad than I knew. And then once we delved into text messages and really started unpacking the relationship and, and, and 
the relationship between Michelle and Conrad, and then also the relationship between Michelle and her friends, the relationship between Michelle and her parents. There was just a deluge of, of information and so much more complexity to her than I think had been able to be expressed and had, had really, nobody was really interested. You know, I mean, I think it's, it's kind of a difficult ask for people when she's already been painted as a picture to say then like, you know, dive in and, and explore her. Um, but so once we'd explored that and found out all the information, I mean, frankly, for me, it was, I just, I felt an enormous amount of empathy for her. I felt sort of an enormous connection to her. Of a lot of the things we were talking about before, I just, I knew what it was like to um, not fit in. I knew what it was like to be the odd duck to, you know, so I think there was that real initial connection um, I was just as a, on a human level. And mm -hmm. then, you know, trying to unpack how somebody gets to the place that she got to and then the place that she and Conrad got to, um, I thought had some value in, 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 exploring instead of just judging and so that was that was kind of the initial thought process and goal the balancing actors the mental health issues here i mean he was suicidal long before her and her anorexia and just the, i mean there's so many things that go into this story that we in the media when before reading like jesse's article for i knew anything either one didn't know anything about that and so that balancing act of bringing that into the show, how did you talk about that in the room? You know, um, we talked about it a lot in the room, but Colton, after Colton Ryan, who plays Conrad, after he was hired, he said something. And so I'm going to steal it and say that's how we articulately said it through the room for a year. <laughs> but he, it was something that has always stuck with me. And it was it really was kind of the intention. We just didn't say it this way, which is that he you know, Conrad has, if you, if you Google him, he comes up as part of the case. He does not come up as, you know, as a life, as, as what he experienced, as all of the things that we know from, from the research we've done or, or um, reading, you know, his text messages or watching his videos. And it felt really important to show the life that this boy led, that the, that he was a three-dimensional person and that um, yes, his, his life ended very tragically and, and, um, he, and, and quickly, you know, mm -hmm. he was only 18, but that showing the 18 years before that and, and showing the son and the brother and the friend felt really, um, vital and felt like something that we could do that hadn't been done before. And so really going in, I think with Conrad, with the intention was, we're not just showing a victim of Michelle Carter. That was never the intention. It was to show him as a fully three-dimensional human being who had a relationship that was extremely toxic, that we are not there to, again, indict or, or judge that, um, but just to show it and to allow an audience to bring you know, maybe a more well-rounded perspective onto their relationship and to onto his life. And the fact that they, this was someone else who said um, that there's a digital blueprint of a relationship, which is something that their mm -hmm. generation um, really has in other ways. What did it teach you about mental health and social media and texting? Well, it's interesting, Patrick McManus, my co-showrunner and I, we signed up to do the project in the end of 2019 and we were writing a pilot when the pandemic happened. And the thing that 
um, I think was the most difficult for us to relate to was we didn't grow up with social media. We didn't grow up with exactly. iPhones and, and having that connection. And so it was a little difficult to relate to that and to find a way to, to find our way in. And then the pandemic happened and suddenly every single person in the world now knows what it's like to conduct intimate relationships over cell phone, over Zoom, over you know this little black box that we carry around in our phone in our in our pockets. So it made it. Um, and you know our our writers' room was over Zoom. I hadn't met the majority of the writers in person until a week before we left for production. Oh, wow. um, and so this intimate connection through technology. So ultimately, it's not connected in any way. Became very relatable and very interesting for us to dive into. Um, but it's it's and it's something that I think um, I was aware of before the pandemic and before this show, but not as consciously or I think as as intimately aware of, which is just the person that you are on the other side of the phone is not you. The, I mean, I think we all know the people on, who we are on social media is most likely not the full version yeah. of ourselves. It's a version we're putting out into the world and we're controlling out into the world. Um, so that I think was really interesting to dive into and really difficult to explore while we were all in that as it was. Um, but it was also really sad. I mean, it makes me it makes me sad that these two people only met each other three times and the other person they felt the most connected to in the world was that person, was was somebody that they felt they could be their most vulnerable self with almost in a digital diary. You know, that's their text messages at times read like that. It's you know, it's not it's not even expecting a response. It's just venting out into this sort of void. And um, so that just makes me sad. It makes me sad for them. And it goes to what you said. I think they absolutely needed help, both of them. Um, but at the same time, if we've learned anything is that everybody's really good at hiding it. Everybody's really good at hiding mental health struggles. Everybody's really good at saying, I'm okay, I'm okay, I'm okay. And we're not okay. And Lynn Roy um, is somebody who... I felt a really deep connection to um, when I first read the article and when I watched the documentary and Conrad's mother, right? Yeah. She's Conrad's mother. And um, she's somebody who really struggled still struggles with guilt. Cause how do you, you know, how do you not know that, that that's happening to your son, but you don't. And that's, I think the thing that pains me the most is, you don't, you just don't, you know, if somebody doesn't want to tell you, they're not going to tell you. And our society is really based on, on shame of mental health, you know, and, and that's where the change needs to happen. Survivor 46 is here. And so is on fire. The only official survivor podcast. And we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Absolutely. I have to go back to Elizabeth because I have a question everyone wants mm -hmm. me to ask you um that's oh, okay. of course the voice <laughs> what mm. did you guys what what was your theory how did you want to deal with that we had a lot of conversations about the voice um liz merriweather uh who was the showrunner 
I think one of the first meetings we ever had, we talked about the voice and whether or not we thought it was real or we thought it was put on because her family says it's real, that she always sounded that way. If you listen to recordings of her very early on, there's a version of the voice. I mean, her voice is naturally very low. So it, there's, there's a part of it there, but it definitely wasn't as dramatic um, as it is now. And, and sort of her affect, um, it, it wasn't as dramatic. So um, I think we were both on the same page that it was a part that was part of the look. It was the turtleneck and the hair and the lipstick and the voice. So it honestly was like very brighter nerdy nerdy of us, which was like we knew we were dropping the first three episodes, and so it was building to that. Um, <laughs> frankly, it was was almost a structured sort of backing up through structure and. Um, which was really exciting because then you get to build this character that gets to that point. You know, why does she put the voice on? And, and you know, you know everyone's waiting okay. first to see, all the audience is waiting to see when you're doing this or if or how. We definitely do it. And for me, I think it's another one of those, you know, she was a young woman in a man's world. And I think the way she dressed was very, um, you know, could fit in into any business meaning and, you know, was very straight lines and, you know, she's not trying to be sexy. She's not trying to be showy. And I think the voice had something to do with that as well. I think trying to be taken seriously was the intention. Now, did it work or did she go too far? I think is a whole other question, but I think that was the intention. And so once we figured that out, it kind of opened up a lot of interesting conversations about her character and how far somebody would go to, be accepted and to be taken seriously. We have the dropout and the girl from Plainville. And then, of course, Delvi, Carol of the Tiger King. Do you have any theory as to why this interest in women scammers or true crime, why is this so big at the moment? I think there's, um, you know, I saw the trailer for Gaslit the other day. Oh, right. It came out. Um, Julia Roberts. And, yeah, and I was I was watching it, and I had wa- listened to that podcast, and and... I, I think I had just done the post, so I was a little water gated out <laughs> at the time. And, um, but the second season, it's either the first or second season is about Monica Lewinsky. And I remember listening to it and I grew up in the 90s. My parents were Democrats, you know, big Clinton fans. I remember the vitriol that women were sending in Monica's direction. And that I grew up where... Monica was the villain and that of that story. And I didn't really think about it. You know, I was a kid and then I got older and um, I listened to this podcast and I just remember thinking like how wrong everybody got it and how horrible it was for this poor girl. I mean, she's a girl to be put in that position. Um, so, and, and so I think that podcast came out like four or five years ago. And I, I feel like there was a shift from there um, that I saw that, you know, once we started to open up the, the can of worms of could we possibly have been wrong? How, no, how dare we? We couldn't be wrong. But once we started asking that question, it seemed like a, a lot of women started, um, you know, I think the Free Britney movement and Britney obviously now being out of the conservatorship and a lot of conversations of, did we judge this woman so harshly and so wrongly for the last 10 years? So I think that has opened up the conversation of, of, of complex women. 
now going into scammers and and all of that, I think it's it's a part of it of just we know one side. Um, at least the part that I'm interested in is I knew one side. Is there more to it? Some sometimes there's not. Sometimes there isn't. Sometimes that is what it is. But I think we've seen women be depicted fairly two dimensionally for a long time. That's not to say that there haven't been amazing depictions of women, but I think particularly villains or or women who are the amount of anti-hero males we've seen yeah. through the years. Um, oh, they've been psychoanalyzed in every single scene. And yeah. very well, I'm not saying it's wrong, but it feels gratifying to see other types of complicated. And I think you said it actually really well around the time that we talked last time. You talked about having conversations about complicated women and that you were really tired of just having this trope of a woman gets into some horrific event and then rises out of the ashes. And that was all you had seen yeah. at that point. And, and, and so, yes, I, I get your point. Exactly. I think, yeah, I agree. I mean, I think it's, it's funny. I, I just had a baby and, and I've been having all these conversations with friends of mine who've had kids and I'm like, nobody actually does tell you about like half the shit that you're going to go through. <laughs> That's for um, your sake. Yeah. In, in, in your body and like things that will change and all of that. And it's interesting because there's supposed to be this conversation of how wonderful motherhood is and how wonderful it is to bring life. But it's like half the time you're looking at yourself, you're like, I don't look the way I look. I don't feel the way I feel, you know, that you, there's a real um, severance of, of self in it which is totally healthy and, and is there. Um, but we don't talk about that because we have to talk about how nice it is to be for motherhood. And that's something we don't talk about with fathers. It's not like, you know, that's not, that, that's not a conversation. And so I think it's um, go, going to what you're talking about is just, I'm not interested in, in, in it, everything being tied up with a bow. I don't think that's life. Life isn't, that's not how it happens. And so I'm much more interested in in the anti-hero and or or no heroes. Exactly. Just, just show me a super complex person who turns out to be a woman and what they went through. And I, I don't think every woman's life is or issues is because they have daddy issues. I don't think every woman's life is complicated because something horrific happened in their past. I think every woman's life is a is a as is different and and i think we should show that on screen you know and I think some are just evil and so, yeah and some are just bad and that's just and it is what it is and i think we're getting to a really great place we're starting to get to a place of representation of seeing people on screen and i want to see that i want to see messy women on screen i want to see complicated women on screen i want to see women who don't look like you know who aren't super thin who are look like everybody else you know i think so um, I'm excited to see what happens and I'm excited to have been a part of it in a little bit. The genre in general, the true crime genre, if I can bunch them in there, were there tropes you really wanted to avoid? Because it's a very specific type of TV. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there were there were some that, it's funny because um, with Plainville, we felt very obligated to tell it in dual timelines because there's so much that happens and uh, his his life obviously ends at a certain point, and so he would not be part of the show going. You know, if we did not do dual timelines, um, so that was something we felt really strongly about. And with the dropout, was something we kind of played with a lot in the room. Was the with her deposition and and bookending the show with that, or every episode with that. 
I think that can sometimes be a trope if you're using it to tell the story, um, almost like narration. If you're if you're um, relying on it as a crutch to help you either emotionally or or with the plot. But I think with both of these, hopefully at least, I mean, I'm I'm you know, it's now out into the world, so everybody else can judge whether or not we did it correctly. Um, but I, I think with these, we went with the intention of how to do it. Um, so. That definitely is, I think, but I don't know. I mean, I think the true crime tropes now are really, when they're done poorly, are attempts to make you empathize with somebody that you're not going to empathize with or or, or it's to twist your arm to care about somebody. And that's, I just don't think we were interested in that for either character. I think we were interested in, we're going to present an empathetic character, hopefully present an empathetic character and you should be able to judge them however you want. Um, but liking them is not something we were interested in. I, I don't think you're, if you come in with an opinion, you're not going to like Elizabeth Holmes or Michelle Carter. You know, I think that's just, that's too difficult for any of us to change your mind. But if you can get to the end and say like, there's a lot of things I didn't know about that really now I understand a little bit more that I feel more comfortable making as a goal than, you know, you want to go hang out. Exactly, because most of the time we know what the end is, so we don't need exactly. you to build the plot up. We need you to have a take, as you guys have had on you know both these shows. So, and I and I think with Plainville in particular, going to true crime tropes, it's exactly what you said, which is everybody's going to know. Everybody knows what happens in this. Making it some type of mystery to get there feels feels and felt at the time when we were breaking it harsh in a way or or sort of not right to me in a way it, it feels like it's dra dramatizing something that um shouldn't be dramatized now i think there are definitely things about the case that i didn't know about that i think are really interesting and uh frankly i i when you i think hopefully when you watch the this the courtroom scenes and when you get into it you're a little surprised that she was convicted because there's just so much that doesn't sort of add up um, whether or not she should, she was guilty or not, I think just the case of how it happened is really sort of interesting. But it's it's to make that um, a ticking clock or to make that exactly. dramatic felt wrong. No, I can see that. Um, have you thought anything what you think will happen to these two women? I mean, what their life will look like going forward? Yeah. Um, you know, with Elizabeth, it's interesting. For the dropout, we had the room in 2019 and... Um, so it's been a long time and um, her case kept getting pushed and then there was a pandemic and then, and then the trial was happening in the middle of shooting at which we're text. I was texting with Liz Merriweather, like while we were on set with sets, getting updates about, you know, what was happening in the trial. And I don't know. I feel, um, I don't know. I, I hope that, I don't know. I, with, with her, I'm not sure what will happen in terms of, the verdict and, and what will happen in terms of jail time or things like that. Um, she's an adult, so I have less of a of fearfulness of her for her or or less, you know. I, I know nothing about the about her, but I have this feeling that she's just gonna have a new idea and once she's you know what I, I mean. It wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean she's kind of that's kind of who she is. So with Michelle, I just hope that she is, is you know, I hope she's okay. And and um, she's still a very young woman. So I hope she's okay. Um, so being a genre agnostic, are there projects that come your way that you're like, nope, 
not that genre or <laughs> not that. Yeah, I mean, the only thing I, 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 you know, it's funny. I always was like, I'm never going to do a horror movie, and then sometimes something comes around. I'm like, oh, that's kind of interesting. I could do that. Um, there's probably. I probably would say, yeah, there's nothing that I, there's something that I wouldn't do and then it'll come around and I would do it. It's more so things now I've had, cause I've had an opportunity to get a comedy. I did the period piece. I've done a few different things. Now I'm really interested in sort of things I haven't done. That's, that's something that, um, and things that people don't think that I could do necessarily. I um, never really considered doing a sci-fi um project and now I, I think I'm gonna do one next oh, and yay. that's really exciting. Um sort of a grounded genre project. And so that's really interesting to me. And that feels like something I, I'm I don't really know anything about other than, you know, I don't have a lot of experience in. And that's my favorite part of this job is like I get to learn every time I do something and I get to do something different. You know, although the dropout and Plainville are very similar in, in terms of um, I think on the surface, it's two complicated women and, and true crime. They're very different. And the way we told the stories was extremely different in, in tone and in, um, you know, there's there are musical sequences in Plainville, um, you know, things like that. That felt really exciting to stretch and do. And so now I'm interested in something I've never done before. So we'll see how it goes. And more directing, hopefully? Hopefully, yes. I'm supposed to direct a feature um, either this end of this year or beginning of next. And um, hopefully more directing in TV. It was great. I enjoyed it. Is there anything you can mention or is it all big Hollywood secrets? Um, the movie that I'm supposed to direct is uh, called um, Who is Maude Dixon? It's based on a book by Alexandra Andrews, which was uh, a great book. It's sort of a updated talent in Mr. Ripley um, with two women. So that I'm super excited about. I'm doing um, with Universal and Amy Pascal, um, getting the getting the post team back together, and then the rest I can't talk about yet, but hopefully soon. Well, I hope I can talk to you after one of those projects again. Absolutely. It's always such a pleasure. Thank you so much, and thank you for these incredible projects and for your complicated women that women that are complicated for real. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you so much to Liz Hanna. The Dropout is on Hulu and premiering on Disney+. And The Girl from Plainville is premiering on March 29th, also on Hulu. And this is Pop Culture Confidential. Thanks so much for listening. See you next time. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I, I hope so, man. I'm tired. <laughs> who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I, I, I've never done it. <laughs> so, no, right.